himself gave us the illustration, and he said, this bread that he was holding up, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. In that same meal, he held up the cup, the third cup in the covenant, and he said, this is a cup of new covenant, and it's in my blood. I've done it for you. Father, we praise you and thank you, both through the worship songs that we've done and through this witness that we've given to each other, that we believe and we thank you that you've redeemed us. We praise you for the forgiveness of sin, for the reality of your resurrection, and the truth that you're coming back again. Praise you in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. I'm going to ask you if you have a Bible with you this morning to go to Genesis chapter 39 and 40. We'll pick up where we left off at last week. You might have it electronically. You might have it um, maybe a, a hard copy. There's Bibles in the racks around you in the chair in front of you. There should be a, a few of them there. If you need a Bible, haven't said this in a while, but we have free Bibles here. There's some out in the Welcome Center. Or if you want one of those hard copy ones, take a Bible with you so that you have a copy of God's Word. So there's this remarkable thing that Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 55, and he begins talking about God's thoughts. This is especially poignant for those of us who go to church, because secretly we would say we think we've got God figured out, right? Oh, you don't want to admit that, do you? Okay, so we would never say that in a small group setting, would we? We would never say that in a Bible study. We would certainly never say that on Sunday morning. But I'll call us out on it because I know that it's part of how I think. We think because we read the Bible and we go to church and we study God and we observe the way that He acts, we think that we understand how God functions. And then along comes Isaiah. And Isaiah writes this in chapter 55. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as, high as the, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is so other, so profoundly other, the Bible says we can't actually even begin to imagine he goes on to say later in Scripture in the New Testament that what He has in store for us in eternity in heaven, your mind can't even go there. Neither has eye seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man. All the things that God has in store for those who love Him, for those who are called according to His purpose. And I can imagine some pretty magnificent things. And God says, your mind can't even go there. You can't imagine what's waiting for you. But echoing in that same theme is this issue about thoughts, that we don't think like God thinks. Let me give you an example of that. The example comes from our human reasoning and how we reason fairness. We rationalize that when somebody does something right, that there should be reward and they should be treated what we would call fairly. And the opposite, we reason, is that when someone does something wrong, there should be punishment. And Peter speaks to this issue in 1 Peter chapter 2. Let me take you there on the screen. 
Peter says in 1 Peter 2.20, For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? In other words, you're getting just what you deserve in those cases. But watch the second component of 1 Peter 2. He says this, For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But, here's the other half, but if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. What you find Peter doing is he's coming in the back door on the very thing that we've been talking about in the last couple of weeks, that God does allow tough situations into the lives of godly people, that He does allow difficult circumstances to come into your world. And what Scripture is amplifying is that He does it for reasons that are far more profound than what you can imagine because his thoughts are not your thoughts and his ways are not your ways. Now, Peter writes these things 2,000 years after Joseph, this, this Joseph of the Old Testament that we're reading about. He writes these things 2,000 years after Joseph, so there's no way that Joseph could possibly have read this principle, but he lived it. He's the guy who's done what is right, He's the one who suffered for doing what is right, and he patiently endured, even to the degree, as I mentioned last week, that he went through torture. So that takes us back to where we left off last week in chapter 39, verse 20. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. And time drags on, and days turn into weeks, and weeks turn into months. And month after month after month after month goes by, and we find that he's been unfairly treated again. Now, for a casual observer to the Bible, you would read this, and knowing Egyptian history would look at it and say, well, he's actually pretty fortunate that he's in jail. Because as we learned last week, under Egyptian law, he could have been, he should have been executed. So even though he once wore this royal coat of many colors, we find him now wearing a prison jumpsuit, and he's sitting in a dungeon, and he's in his mid to late 20s, and I'm thinking, he's privately thinking, am I always going to be stuck here? Am I always going to be in this dungeon? Is this my future? Am I never going to get out? And because it's human, the big question that comes along during times like this, the big question that really derails people when they endure hardship is this, where's God? Where's God in the midst of this? Now, from my own opinion, I'll, I'll just tell you that I think that only a legitimate believer can actually even ask that question because someone who's dismissed God and rejected God, they have no basis for even asking or challenging God or trying to attempt to manufacture some degree of discontent. Believers find themselves in that place of saying, where's God? I'm going through this really hard time. I can't find Him in this. Well, let's go to that question. Where is God? Well, admittedly, it's easier to see God during the good times. When we're having pleasure in our life, things are going really, really well. Well, it's, it's not difficult to say, God's really blessing me. But where is God in my dungeon experience? Where do we find Him in Joseph's story? Verse 21 tells us, but the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him, even in jail. 
and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. Verse 22, the chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. <clears throat> the chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge second time because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. God's right there. He never left. It's an echo of Hebrews 13, 5. God himself said, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. God's right there. If you're asking, where is God? He's right in the midst of these circumstances. So twice we read, the Lord was with Joseph, Genesis 39. And the result is, Joseph prospered of all places. He prospered in a prison. He's prospering behind bars. Admittedly, I would say Joseph is a pretty good manager. He's a good administrator, and he's got a lot of skills, and obviously the warden recognized that. But note that as you read this, it's God who made the difference. It's the Lord who blessed him. So once again, God turns the evil that's been done to Joseph into good, and it isn't long before the prison warden notices these things and puts Joseph in charge. But we should be catching the bigger picture here. God puts Joseph in a dungeon in order to build character for what he has in store for him and what lays ahead in his life. So his dungeon experience became a school, and in that school, he's learning about the nature and character of God, and he's learning to wait on the Lord. This is a good place to pause right now and just say to you, in whatever situation you're going through, I don't know what you're facing right now. I don't know how difficult the circumstances that you're walking through, but ask yourself this question in the midst of it. What am I learning about God right now? And what is He teaching me about myself? So we find this thing that's very crucial to remember, the Lord was with Joseph, and I want to remember that. But I also have to recognize there's this reciprocal thing going on in the relationship. And reciprocal I mean by this. Joseph doesn't walk away from God. God has permitted him to go into the dungeon relationship in this issue where he's in the pit of the ground. But instead of being angry and being bitter about the circumstances he finds himself in, here's the reciprocal part. Joseph doesn't abandon God. You'll see that in the story. He doesn't walk away in anger. He submits and he obeys and he does exactly what he can with the skills that God gave him to the degree that in verse 23 you read that the warden didn't have to supervise Joseph at all. He put everything under his charge. He doesn't even bother to check on his work. The trust is that total yet. Can I just say, whether or not you're the lead guy in prison, you're still in prison, right? You're still in the dungeon. You may have a high rank, but you're still being held behind bars. So we see this in chapter 40. Then it came about after these things that the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. Now that's a bad day. Pharaoh is that mad at you. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard. Pause right there. What did we learn two weeks ago about who the captain of the bodyguard was? Potiphar. Potiphar is the chief executioner. He's the tabak. He's the butcher. So he specializes in killing and in torturing They've been put into this place where Potiphar is in charge of, the captain of the bodyguard, in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. 
The captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them, and he took care of them, and they were in confinement for some time. Now, this mention of serving time is really significant, especially how it fits into archaeology. Serving time in prison as, as punishment seems really normal in our modern world. We have county jails, we have state prison systems, we have federal prison systems. We're very familiar with incarcerating individuals. But in the ancient world, that was very rare. There weren't prisons as you think of them. So in the ancient world, what they did with criminals typically is they either killed them or they mutilated their bodies or they would put them into slavery and they have, would do time as slaves. The prison system as we know it didn't exist. However, one of the few nations in ancient world history that actually had a prison system is Egypt. And Egypt, archaeologists have revealed to us exactly what they were like because they've come across these pieces of papyrus that describe them. They're called the place of confinement, not a fancy title, but what they were is divided into two parts. There's the cell block area where they kept the prisoners so they would sleep, and then there's the area where they would feast, where they would have their meals. That's it. Eat and sleep, and during the daytime, they're sent out as laborers to work on Pharaoh's projects. So that's how they held them. The king's prison was in what we know today as Thebes in Upper Egypt. And in Thebes, this region was where the king's royal court was and where his royal prison was. And that's where he placed the royal prisoners. Now, one more detail. Record-keeping was extremely important to the Egyptians. They had, they had lots of scribes and individuals who would write down the things that took place in government. So the overseer of the prison had lots of assistants. Some of them were scribes. And those individuals would keep a record of the prisoners and they would keep charge over what happened within the prison. So this title, the overseer of the prison, is a title that's not commonly found in Egyptian history, but it is found during the time of the Middle Kingdom, right during the time when Joseph lived, further evidencing what we're reading here. Now, why is this all important? Well, this plays into the story very significantly because the, the chief of the jail had an assistant, was known as the chief scribe. And apparently Joseph has just been made this chief scribe because he's literate. He can read, he can write, he's in charge, he's got administrative skills, and as such, he becomes the right-hand man of the warden, and he's in charge of all the records of the prison. And on the scene where he's responsible comes the cupbearer who's in charge of Pharaoh's wine and the baker who's in charge of Pharaoh's food. And it's really hard for us to know the offense of why they're being put in prison, but considering the story, it's likely that there's been a plot to kill Pharaoh, probably through poisoning. Now, they're waiting to find out if they're going to be executed, but we understand the overarching reason that they're really there is to meet Joseph. So the cupbearer had these responsibilities. He had, he had a huge amount of responsibility because he not only tasted the wine, he tasted all the food. Everything before Pharaoh would take in wine or would take in drink, the cupbearer would taste it. And if it was poisoned, well, long live Pharaoh, but too bad for the cupbearer, right? And so the Pharaoh gave this person a lot of responsibility. This person would never allow poorly prepared food to be served to the Pharaoh. He's always watching out for his diet. And this led to a really close relationship between the Pharaoh and his cupbearer. So kings, 
they often confided in their cupbearer. They served as like a personal butler to them. You, you find records of this when you read the story of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Nehemiah was a cupbearer before the king, and he was highly trusted. But there were serious consequences if that trust had been broken. Well, something like that has to be the situation here because the cupbearer lands in jail. At the same time, the king's baker lands in jail. So this plot must be related to their food. And it must be a suspicion that there's some kind of poisoning that's gone on. And so Pharaoh has to lock them away until he can get to the bottom of this. So we find in chapter 40, verse 2, Pharaoh was furious with his two officials. Now, notice it's in plural that they're the chief of the butlers and the chief of the bakers, meaning there's multiples at that level. But these guys are the ones who are in charge. And Pharaoh puts both of them in royal prison. Since God's thoughts are not our thoughts, since His ways are not our ways, since He is profound, it just happens to be the exact same jail where Joseph is second in command. A Potiphar has placed Joseph in charge of them. So Joseph not only has the trust of the warden, he has the trust of the guy who put him away originally, obviously leading to the fact that maybe he doesn't actually believe his wife and that accusation that came about rape. Let's keep going with the story. Verse 5, then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt who were confined in jail both had a dream the same night, each man with his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. Now, church, what are the odds? Let's just talk about the reality of this. What are the odds that two distinctly different, powerful individuals who had really high offices with access to Pharaoh, that they're going to have dreams about their own destiny on the exact same night, and they're in a dungeon together, and they're with the guy who has the gift of interpreting dreams? Does it smell to you like God's up to something? Like God's orchestrating something? Now, know this, the dreams played a very important role in ancient Egypt. And the ability to interpret dreams, a highly respected skill. People gave those individuals a, a lot of leniency and, and a lot of respect went into individuals who could actually hear something, process it, and say, here's what's going to happen. So watch Joseph's response. Verse 6. When Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. He asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? Verse 8, then they said to him, we've had a dream and there is no one to interpret it. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. You really should pay attention to that last statement that he made there. He's pointing individuals who are in the dungeon just like himself to God. They may not have any relationship with God whatsoever, but he's pointing them to God. And you're getting a window into Joseph's heart. Remember, this guy's like 27, 28 years of age. And this window that you're getting into his heart is this. People who are consumed with anger and with bitterness, they do not concern themselves with the personal problems of other people. They rarely ask them what's going on. That, Joseph, even notices their countenance, means this to you. He is a caring young man. He is a discerning young man. And he has a great de deal of humility. How many of us 
encounter people that we run to, into in the course of a week and we're wondering what's going on in their life. We can see something is different about them, but we don't want to ask because we have the next thing to get on to. And we're busy with our agenda and our schedule. But Joseph is humble enough, even though he's second in command over this entire prison system, he's willing to say to them, what's wrong with you? They could have simply responded with, well, we're in a dungeon. That's not the response. We're told that there's this response of a dream. In the New Testament, we see that one of the keys to living like Jesus is recognizing the needs of other people. In other words, being others-centered. That's exactly what Jesus was. He was others-centered, meaning very, very aware. Joseph could easily justify watching out for himself. I don't belong in here. It's my needs first. No one's worrying about me. I'm in my pain. My needs are important. I have to take care of myself. But that's not who he is. See, if anyone ought to have a sad face in this moment, it's Joseph. He doesn't know if he's ever going to see the light of day again. On the contrary, he seems to be free of bitterness. And because of that, he can be a useful tool in God's hand. And he can point other people to God and say, don't interpretations belong to God? There's an element going on here in the midst of what we're seeing described. Simply asking the question, what's wrong? What's wrong going on for you? It reveals this ability to get outside of your own immediate cares, and that's precisely what you see Joseph doing. Now, little do the baker and little do the wine taster know that they have the dreamer right in their own midst. And it's remarkable to me that Joseph wants anything to do with interpreting dreams, considering how badly things went for him last time he did this. But he asked anyway. So verse 9 says this. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. And as it was budding, its blossoms came out, and its clusters produced ripe grapes. Now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, so I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. And you notice in the dream, he sees all the stages of this quickly developing grape in very quick succession. It goes from vines to buds to blossoms, suddenly it's a grape, and then he's got Pharaoh's cup in his hand, and he's making wine from the grapes. Did you notice in the description, though, the sequencing? The sequencing is in three. The number three is really prominent. There, there's three branches. There's three terms used to describe the grapes of the vine, that, that they budded, that they blossomed, and that they clustered. And then Pharaoh is mentioned three times, and the cup is mentioned three times. So Joseph picks up on this, and he says, interpretations belong to God. Whatever God revealed to him at this point is obvious right here in verse 12. Then Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom when you were his cup bearer. So the essence of the interpretation is three days, you're out of here. You're going to be freed from prison and you're going to be restored. But he doesn't stop there. He says, hey, I've done you this favor. Can you do me a favor? When you get to Pharaoh, will you remind him that I'm here? Watch with me, verse 14. 
Only keep me in mind when it goes well with you, and please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For I was, in fact, kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing that they should have put me into the dungeon. The Hebrew word that's used here for dungeon, uh, it's talking about a pit. The, the same words are used in a descriptive way in the Greek language in the New Testament when it talks about hell. Hell is described as this, or the lake of fire is this place with a pit that's bottomless. It never ends. Well, the same word that's used here in Hebrew to describe a pit has a bottom. We don't know how big this dungeon is, probably pretty large, because it has all of Pharaoh's prisoners in it. But it's in this pit that for the very first time in the story of Joseph, we find him actually speaking in his own defense. No matter how high his rank, Joseph really values his own freedom more than being in a high office in prison. And he knows for certain this cupbearer is going to be released. He's that confident about what God has revealed to him, and that one's going to have access to Pharaoh. So he says, when it goes well with you, and I know it's going to, when my interpretation really comes true, remember me. Will you put in a good word for me? Because two evils have been done to me. I was kidnapped and have been falsely accused, and I don't belong here. I've done nothing to be in a dungeon. And finally, Joseph's humanity emerges. Finally, you see that he's not a superhero. This is a real person. This is a real young man, and he's tired of waiting. And he's humanly reasoning and rationalizing just like you and I do. He looks at the situation, and he says, this is unfair. This isn't supposed to be happening to me, and I think Pharaoh can fix it. Now, put that aside on the shelf. We'll come back to that in just a moment because the baker overhears the conversation, and the baker says, what about me? Go with me. Verse 16, when the chief baker saw that he had interpreted favorably, he said to Joseph, I also saw in my dream, and behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head. And in the top of the baskets, there were some of all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, and the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. Now, the pictorials in Egypt, you can look at them today. You can look this one up later today yourself if you want. There's images in the tombs in Egypt of people carrying baskets of bread on their heads. So the baker's describing something very familiar to this time. That's just a detail. But there's a bigger thing going on here. I'm expecting in this moment that there's a very long pause. Joseph has just heard this description, and he knows. He knows what it's going to lead to. And you really have to respect this 27, 28-year-old's integrity because he knew what this dream meant. This guy is going to die. This isn't going to end well for him. Who wants to deliver that message? Who wants to tell somebody that your flesh is going to be given over to the birds? He could have told the baker anything, and the baker would have never known the difference, but not Joseph, because he's got that degree of integrity in his heart. Look with me. Then Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you. Notice that, from you. 
and you will hang, hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh off you. How agonizing are those next three days for the baker? He liked what he heard about the wine taster. He didn't like what he's hearing here. Now, the, the baker's been dead for 4,000 years. We're present in this moment in 2022, and we're reading about this as a historical event. So the baker's long since gone, yet what we're finding here is this thread through the story that J Joseph is found faithful to this message. You know that this guy has integrity because he's true to the voice of God, meaning this, he's just as faithful to deliver the hard message as he is to deliver the favorable message. And you hope that's the mark of a faithful follower of Christ, one who does not fail to deliver the whole counsel of God. Paul said that about himself when he's speaking to the church at Ephesus. You see this in the book of Acts? Look, look with me at the way that he said it. For I did not shrink, Acts 20, 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. If you're new to church, what he's saying is, I didn't shy away from telling you the hard truth. I'm willing to tell you exactly how things are between you and your future, between you and God. James Montgomery Boyce died in 2000. He's a modern-day theologian, and respect his writings. He wrote something significant about 20 years before his death. I wanted you to see his quote. It's in your notes this morning also. How many there are who are willing to preach the cupbearer's sermon but are unwilling to preach the baker's sermon. That's really good. James Montgomery Boyce was writing about the modern day church and how the church has shrunk away from declaring the hard things of God. Do you know this new hope that across America, thousands of churches have closed since COVID? Not Bible churches, but churches who were chasing a woke agenda, who pursued not the things of God, but tried to be chasing after the God of affirmation, some stupid agenda, and stop declaring God's truth. Where God's lifted up, he said, I will draw people to myself. We serve no favors to anyone that we know when we fail to share the complete truth of God's counsel. So let me encourage you this way. At Christmas time, if you're willing to talk with your neighbor about the baby in the manger, can I encourage you to be just as willing to talk about the king who died for their sins? I hope you could agree with me on that. Let me get back into this story. To lift up your head, it's got a really significant meaning in the ancient world. It means to have your case considered by the king now, for the baker, there's this phrase that has this double meaning to it. To, to lift up your head means to have your case considered, but he goes on to say to have your case considered, to have your head lifted up from you. Here's the detail. Egyptians beheaded their criminals, and then they would stick them on a pole and impale them before the world for all the world to see. Because they would do that, it was referred to as hanging them like a stake on a tree pole. Well, there's this dual sense in what Joseph has just said. He's going to lift up your head. He's going to lift it up from you. He's going to behead you, and then he's going to hang you, and the birds are going to eat your flesh. 
How'd you like to have that on your mind for the next three days? And you're waiting to see if that's actually going to happen. Go back into the story, verse 20. Thus it came about on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. So they're all commonly discussing the situation. And they go on, he restored the chief cupbearer to his office, and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted to them. So Joseph sees the cupbearer taken from prison. And if you're thinking like Joseph in this moment, you're thinking, yes, I'm out of here. This is my ticket. I'm going to get to be talking to Pharaoh. So he's anticipating in this moment that, that, that he's going to have some warden coming to him and saying, hey, Joey, I got a call from the governor. I'm supposed to set you free. You've been pardoned. And he waits. And he waits. And he waits two months, three months, four Five, six, a year follows. Where would your mind be in that moment? What if you've done everything right? You don't belong where you're at. You have an advocate, and you've delivered the truth. Where would your mind be? Verse 23, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. That's a really hard verse. Joseph has told only the truth. He's requested specifically to be remembered, and there's only silence. It doesn't take much for your mind to go beyond just the responsibility of the cupbearer and ask, where's God in that moment? What about God moving that person to remember? Where would your mind be? I never deserved to be here. I can't believe he forgot me. And logically, your mind could go to that next place. Have you forgot me, God? Do you even remember that I'm here? Scripture compels you and I in moments like this to remember Psalms 146.3. Do not put your trust in princes, in mortal men who cannot save. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, the Lord who remains faithful forever. Here's how it ends today. We're going to come back to this in January because we've got Christmas ahead of us and we start Christmas series next week and I, I want this to linger with you because you're gonna feel the pain of waiting just like Joseph felt the pain of waiting. Genesis 41.1, look at this. Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. It is really easy to overlook that detail. Two more years, Joseph is in a dungeon and it doesn't matter that he's got the highest rank in the dungeon. He's still in a dungeon. I'm very confident in what I'm about to say because I've gone through hard times in my life. I know many of you have gone through hard times in your life. I'm very confident that this is true of Joseph. It is there in this moment that God became more real than ever before to Joseph. When you're at rock bottom, 
when you're in the dungeon of your life, that dungeon experience becomes the truest test of faith. And the truest test of faith asks us a question. Will we be found faithful on the other side? Or will we abandon God? Is that the moment where you begin shaking your fist saying, where are you? I don't see you. I'm out. Or is that the moment where you endure patiently? Peter wrote this, 1 Peter 2.20, if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure, this finds favor with God. We've been reading over the last couple weeks as we looked at Joseph's life story, we've seen that the Lord was with Joseph in the pit, in the caravan, on the slave chain, on the auction block, in Potiphar's house, and here you've seen today in the dungeon. In the midst of all your trials, regardless of what you're walking through right now, I'm here to remind you this morning, He is for you. He is with you. He's not left you. He's not abandoned you. He has not forgotten you. He never left. And the truth is, He knows the heartache that you're carrying right now. He knows it intimately. And that thing that burdens you, He's very, very aware of how it's shaping you. Old Testament, New Testament are very consistent on this point. Look with me at this. Deuteronomy 31.6, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the Old Testament repeated in the New Testament, Hebrews 13.5, when we're told that God himself has said, he will never leave you, he will never forsake you. But here's the hard truth that a lot of Christians are not willing to say to people who are not believers. That's only true if you are in relationship with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Based on the dead silence and Jerry saying amen, there's only one person who believes that. I'll give you another shot at it. If you believe that you need a relationship with God for that to be true, say amen. Okay, just making sure you're still here. It's only true if you're in a relationship with God. If you reject God, there's no reason to believe that he's going to be with you in the difficulties. He's after his own. He's pursuing us. He pursues the non-believer also to bring them into relationship, but he's with you through these difficulties if you're in the relationship. Because I know, because I watched you lift the cup, I watched you witness to each other that you're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know that you're believing. And if you're believing, you're accepting this reality that God says, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. If you understand that and you believe God and take him at his word, then as one who believes his word, you know this. I don't have to tell you. You know that he's with you. He is for you to a thousand generations. May his blessing be upon you. Now that's for believers. But what about for the person who's gone through the really, really hard time and says, because, and I've had this conversation with individuals who say to me, because of all the horrible things that have happened to me in my life, because of those issues, I reject it. 
Because I couldn't see God in that. Where was God? What do you say to someone like that? How do you respond? Maybe you'll be in that conversation this week or this month. How do you respond to an individual like that? I I respond with a really simple illustration. It goes like this. When they built the Queen Mary, and by that I mean the ship, if you're older than 40, you know what I'm talking about. Younger than 40, check with somebody else. But it was a cruise ship that was built for the Queen. And they didn't water test it with fire hoses. They water tested it by putting it out to sea. They put it through what's known as sea trials. They do that commonly with ships today. Putting the ship through sea trials was meant to see if it was worthy. The trials were intended not to sink the ship, but to test it, to see if the ship is seaworthy. When you personally are going through trials, the way that you know your faith is real is when the pressure of the trials come at you, and then you know if you're seaworthy or not. So I would ask a person this question in the midst of that conversation, this question. When you're going through the trial, did you lose your faith? Or did you find that you didn't have any to begin with? Because the trials just reveal. They reveal what's already in there. In the case of Joseph, we've seen that it's revealed that he really has a solid relationship with God. Is it being tested? Absolutely. Are you being tested? Absolutely. Is God with you? Yes, He is for you. 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 Are you getting tired of hearing it yet? He is for you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Amen and amen. Have a great week, New Hope.